0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It's very nice to be in
1: Phoenix. This is actually the first time that I've been here. Um, And, um, you know, it's always, you know, nice to kind of get to know a place and its culture. I think the thing that I have heard most commonly in the few conversations I've had is uh, about the summers. Um, And so uh, I'm glad I didn't come then. Uh, But then again, you know, uh, I'm from Washington, D.C., where we also have famous summers. Slightly lower temperatures, but humidity, that will make you just as miserable as you probably are here. Um, So anyway, it's very nice to be here and very nice to be part of the Valley Beit Midrash program, which is really a, a wonderful gift, I think, to this community. Um, you know, I, I, the learning is often the way you gauge whether a community is vibrant, and uh, the kind of learning that that uh, institution provides, I think, is, uh, you know, makes this a very special place. Now, what I'd like to do is, uh, tonight is, and, uh, and it's the, you know, the title uh, gives it away, is that I'm gonna be speaking um, about a book that I wrote um, in which AJ just uh, mentioned, called uh, "The Peace and Violence of Judaism from the Bible to Modern Zionism." Um, this was a book that was written a number of years ago, uh, but it 's been the framework for a lot of my thinking, not just about Judaism but also other religions as well, particularly Christianity and Islam, which i 've also done a fair amount of studying of and um, so I continue to go back to this book and continue to talk about it because you know it, it represents you know, some of the, the fundamental uh, thinking that I do about religion and this very difficult question of peace and violence. Uh, so what's the book about? Well, what the book does is it tries to examine peace and violence throughout history um, in Judaism, specifically in relation to non-Jews. And I have to explain, you know, I have to emphasize it's about, the relationship with non-Jews, because if you think about it, there are many kinds of violence and peace that you could talk about, many, many types of relationships that you have in the Bible that could be characterized by those words. Uh, you know, after all, God is, a, you know, God is violent, right? God's violent towards not just towards non-Jews, but Jews as well. Um, you have violence towards women. You have violence towards gay people. Um, and these topics are all worth examining, um, but my interest was specifically in how Jews relate to non-Jews, not because there wasn't anything to talk about with these other issues, but just that's what was the focus here. Um, and the question that it asks is, you know, is the relationship that Jews have to non-Jews throughout history, um, philosophically, theologically, is it, is it, a, is it a, a, you know, a peaceful one, a warm one, or is it a violent one, a very negative one? Now, what got me interested in writing this topic? Um, well, I think you know the first the first issue is obvious, and that is that we're living um, in a time where we have a Jewish state. Uh, Jews didn't have political power for centuries; uh, they lost it 1,800 years ago uh, with the destruction of the Jewish state by Rome, uh, right, first century. And so, it took 1,800 years for Jews to regain sovereignty and to have a state of their own, and that didn't happen until 1948. And of course, I think you know we'll all agree it's been a wonderful thing for Jews in many respects, but it's also brought with it a lot of responsibility and a lot of dilemmas, specifically on the issues that are um, at hand tonight, because Jews now have an army in which they can use violence to hurt others, and so that requires us to think about this issue. So even though my book deals with the issue of peace and violence throughout Jewish history, um, I'm very, you know, I'm I'm particularly interested in this topic because of how important it is to contemporary Jews in light of the creation of the State of Israel. So that was one reason I, I decided to do this project. A second reason has to do with the state of the world in general, which is the world also isn't in great shape on this issue. And a lot happened to me, I think, in the wake of 9-11, which um, struck very close to home, right near where I work at GW. You know, I saw the smoke from the Pentagon that morning uh, over the horizon um, where the plane had had crashed. One of the planes had crashed. And um, it made me think a lot about this issue of religion and violence and that something had to be done about it. And then I looked in the mirror and said, well, look, maybe I should do something about it. Because after all, I'm a professor of religion. And I study Judaism in particular, but I'm really interested in all religions. And you know, for years, my specialty had been in fairly esoteric pursuits. I was a specialist in medieval Judaism and medieval philosophy and medieval biblical commentaries. Fascinating stuff. I have no regrets, you know, having spent years doing that, but I kind of looked at myself and said, "Well, maybe I should think about something a little bit more contemporary and uh, see what I can do for the world." And so I became interested not just in Judaism on this issue of peace and violence, but also in particular uh, Christianity and Islam, uh, because these, are, these were the religions that seemed to be most in the headlines you know, uh, at that time, and to some extent that's still the case, directly or indirectly. And so I became involved, I began to write on this issue, and also I became, became involved in dialogue between Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Um, And also this got me involved in international dialogue and political dialogue on the national level and a little bit on the international level, having to do a little bit also with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And uh, being in Washington, of course, was a, you know, a very, you know, I realized uh, after years of being there that this is actually a pretty neat thing because when you express an interest in things of this sort, you know, there are a a lot of opportunities. Now, I want, I want to clarify before I go any further that I've never had any illusion that I was going to make a difference. Um, you know, and sometimes when people say to me, you know, I sometimes get this question, a professor, you know, you've been doing this work, you know, working with Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Have you had an impact? And I say to them, well, let's see, I've been doing this for 16 years. And over that period, things have actually gotten worse, <laughs> which has led me to one of two conclusions, that I am either having absolutely no effect at all or that, in fact, I'm doing real harm. So, um, you know, but I still continue with this on the belief that, you know, this is a labor of love and that, you know, you have to do it just, be- well, you have to do it, I do it for myself, really, because I kind of feel like I, it's, 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 it does something for me. Anyway, all joking aside, this was, this was the background uh, to the book. Um, it was really a couple of things um, the issue of Israel and also um, the issue of the world in general. So, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the book about? What, the, what, what, what actually do I try to do uh, in this book? So, let me, let me begin with a couple of general observations. One is that it attempts to show that throughout, that if you look throughout the history of Judaism, there is a persistent ambiguity. I think the key word here is ambiguity regarding this issue of peace and violence. Um, What I did in this book is that I examined every time period in Judaism. I examined every time period in Judaism from the Bible to modern Zionism, which is why it's in the title, um, to see what I could find. And what I found was that Judaism, that in every one of those time periods, in every every major uh, thought period, or, or every major branch of Judaism, there were those voices that supported a, a, a very negative and violent relation towards non-Jews, and those that supported a very, uh, very peaceful one. There's ambiguity all throughout. What I found especially intriguing is that even individual sources themselves could go either way. Sources that I thought, for years, uh, you know, were you know, I just assumed that oh, this is the most wonderful peaceful source. Turns out there were people who read that, that same you know had read those sources violently. Or that particular source violently, and and the same the other way around. Sources that I thought were, were you know just irredeemably violent turned out to be sources that could actually be read in a com- in, in completely the opposite way that I than I had expected. One thing that it does is it tries to just sort of map out this ambiguity. You know, on the one hand, on the other hand, but also I was asking myself all the way along in this study, and I continue to ask myself, why is there this ambiguity? Can I come up with Rules of interpretation, general principles that explain, you know, on a kind of more on a meta level, why this is happening. Why are the texts ambiguous? You know, and of course, you know, the, the most obvious reason is that, well, you have different interpreters, you know, and, and you have Jews, right? Two, two, two Jews, three opinions. So you're going to have a lot of different opinions on the same sources. But I also found there was a lot else going on, and I'll talk about a little bit about it later. For instance, very interesting things having to do with historical context—so how Jews reacted to their historical environment, and whether you know, and how that played into this whole question of why they would think badly or violently about Jew- non-Jews, and how they might, how they might think uh, peacefully towards them. So those are the those are the kind of the basic principles that uh, undergirded, or, the, well, the basic principles that came out of this study. Now, it's important to emphasize that I'm really not trying to show whether one side is right or wrong. I, I, you know, I, I really try to be objective, because in some sense, both sides are right, and what I was kind of trying to do is bring them together to, into dialogue you know, in each period, a kind of a, an imaginative dialogue. You know, you, well, you've, you know you've got, uh, one group saying one thing, you know, one, one group of thinkers in a period saying one thing and, and another group saying the opposite. And what actually is kind of going on here? How, if they were to talk to each other, what would they say? Um, now this, and, and in fact, the very structure of the book was designed to bring out these two voices because I, 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 I examined several thought worlds or several periods in Jewish history. I say thought worlds because I'm really interested not just in, in periods, but in, in, in actual um, uh, periods of theology. So there's the Bible, right? These are the, these are the chapters. The Bible, the rabbinic Judaism, the rabbis, medieval philosophy, Kabbalah, and then, of course, the modern period, in particular, modern Zionism. I did a chapter on each of these major chunks of the Jewish tradition throughout history, and what I did was, in each chapter, I had the section that said, Judaism is violent, and I would write the violent side, right? And then there would be the, sec- the second section, which was a separate, was, you know, Judaism is, is peaceful. So I actually sort of wrote two chapters for every chapter that I wrote, rereading the sources, this, you know, in a completely different way. And again, trying to understand wh- where, where their differences were and why they were why those two voices existed in every single thought world that I examined. Now, uh, this may sound like a very strange way to write a book, and it kind of was. But what I was really essentially doing was trying to, you know, in some ways it it was a very personal study, because what I was trying to do was I was trying to put onto paper a battle between voices in my own head it had been going on for years, and that I had wrestled with for years. You know, was this religion really inherently violent, or was it inherently peaceful? Which, which was it? And so I often affectionately describe the book as follows. I say, my book is a book in which I argue with myself about peace and violence in Judaism while then asking myself periodically, why am I arguing with myself? Now, some of you may be thinking at this point that what I need more than anything else is a really good therapist, <laughs> and um, there is some, there might, there's probably some truth to that. I, you know, I'm not an expert, but you know, I figure there's probably some sort of personality disorder, you know, in which you have this kind of split personality thing going on, you know. Anyway, probably, t- probably too much information, right? At this point, why don't, why don't I? I'll get back to. Let, let me get back to the. Uh, to the, uh, to the subject at hand. But anyway, in a sense, that's really what the book is. It's, it's really me wrestling with very personal things that I had been thinking about for a long time. Now look, the big question is here, and I'll get it right out at the beginning, is that if, if Judaism is ambiguous on such an important issue, can it really guide us then? I mean, What do you do as a Jew if you've got both? Well, no, do we have nothing but confusion? That's something I've always I've I've wrestled with now for a long time, and I'll deal with that at the end. And I can't promise I'm going to be able to solve all the problems. Uh, Personally, I have to tell you, I've always been the one I I like peace. I'm I'm a peaceful kind of guy, you know. I'm I'm pretty mild mannered and mellow, and so I like the peaceful type of Judaism. And I'll explain why uh, later. But um, the thing is, I think you have to conduct an honest. I think people in religion have to conduct an honest. Um, discussion with their, with their religion and with their religious sources in order to figure out what those sources say. And people often don't do that. Um, uh, you know, this is one of the things that I think drove me to write this book was also, you know, was this issue, and that is that people will, Jews tending to say, well, you know, the Judaism is a peaceful religion, but they've never really kind of looked at the sources objectively to, to figure that out. They just kind of wanted to assume that and read that view in, or the other, right? I mean, might be, you know, very right-wing Jews, you know, who insist, you know, that this is a tough, muscular religion. Uh, let me finish the talk, and then we'll, we'll have, I'd love to hear your questions. Um, and look, I'm just saying an honest reason, an honest reading has to recognize both sides. You can't present, the, pretend there's, that the other side doesn't exist. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what do we do with it? Now, I should also, to share what my contributions were to the academic world because, you know, isn't this something that people have written about already? Well, they kind of have. I mean, you know, the issue of peace and violence. Since 9-11, I wasn't the first guy to come along and say, well, we should write, I should write a book about this. And there were, in fact, books written before 9-11 that dealt with the, these very issues about religion and its ambiguities. Um, but what they've tended to do, the problem is that the people who study this issue tend to study it on a very general level. They'll talk about religion in general. There are no specific studies, there were no specific studies at least that, at that time when I wrote this a number of years ago in 2011, that um, dealt with ambiguity in one particular religion. Uh, and it's important to do that because every religion is different. Every religion has its own dynamic and its own ambiguities and therefore yeah, yeah you have to look at specific religions. But scholars have generally been very reluctant to do do this. And it's because these issues are very highly charged. And so here's what you often get when a scholar writes about a particular religion on this issue of peace and violence. You often get very strong apologetic um, analyses of that particular religion very positive analyses. Because Why? Because most people who write about specific religions adhere to that religion. I'm a Jewish scholar. I write about Judaism. My Christian colleagues at GW write about Christianity. My Muslim colleagues, colleagues write about Islam and so forth. So um, generally, it's very hard for people to, to, to look at the violent side of their own religion in the academic world. This is what I, I constantly find. They, you can't easily have a dialogue with them about this. And so, um, you know, and then of course, you know, you have the, the extreme on the other side. The people who, who write about religion and this issue will sometimes have, make scathing attacks. Like, you know, and, and there are books about how Islam, you know, Islam is only violent. Um, particularly, you know, Islam gets a lot of, you know, get, gets that kind of negative PR. And then of course, there are the people who write about religion generally and, and say it's horrible, right? You know, Christopher Hitchens of some years ago and Sam Harris. And, Richard Dawkins, they write scathing attacks on religion. So you see, my contribution was really on two levels. First of all, s- uh, dealing with ambiguity in one religious tradition, not just sort of, well, sort of very generally, but actually looking in, in deeply into one religion for this purpose and also and acknowledging both sides. And you see, my hope was that when I wrote this book that other scholars and other religious traditions would do the same. Maybe no surprise, Uh, there have been no takers. (laughs) So, which is uh, somewhat disappointing to me, but you know, maybe sometime, sometime soon. All right, so these are the the general, these are the general principles. And now what I'd like to do is take a look at some of the specifics of the book. Can't talk about the whole project. So my plan is to highlight a couple of, you know, to highlight important features and to do that, I'd like to focus on what I think are really two key chapters here. One is on Rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism of the rabbis, the world of the Talmud, and the other is on Zionism. And uh, I think that's the the best I can do within the time I've been given. So let's begin. I'd like to talk about this phenomenon which we call Rabbinic Judaism. Now, I never know, I mean, that's a term that's actually used mostly by academics and it doesn't really make its way too much into the popular uh, world. Um, it's the, you know, rabbinic Judaism is the Judaism of the rabbis, and it's a Judaism that didn't exist for the first thousand years of Judaism. You know, the Bible and then the rabbis come along really around the time when the temple is destroyed, the Jewish state is destroyed by Rome in the first century, which is something I mentioned earlier. This is around the time that the Hebrew Bible comes into its form, in final form, and so you have this transition from the Hebrew Bible to the rabbis as, as, uh, as leaders of the Jewish people. And the central text that they produce is, is, of course, the Talmud, which is this voluminous work which is a compilation of discussions about Jewish law and becomes really the core of Judaism, uh, uh, you know, up to, and I would say even including the modern period. Most of the Judaism that we practice today is based either on the Bible or on rabbinic Judaism or maybe more accurately on, on, on the Hebrew Bible as filtered through rabbinic Judaism. That, that's the case even you know, for, for very liberal branches of Judaism. You know, the rabbis kind of are the key here of, of, of classical, for, for classical Judaism. Now, you may wonder, you know, why don't I talk about the Hebrew Bible? Everybody knows the Bible. But, I, you know, and in fact, the first chapter in the book is on the Bible. But I like to talk about the rabbis because, again, they're the ones that gave shape to Judaism, and they're critical in understanding this whole issue. Judaism, as I said... Uh, really is, is the Old Testament as interpreted by the rabbis, at least up to the modern period. And then you have the modern branches of Judaism that sort of do different things with that foundation. But the, everybody, you know, all the branches of Judaism today are trying to figure out uh, how to interpret the Bible and the rabbis. So let's, let's play this game, right? Let's have the two voices in my head. Let's play the peace game. Um, let's start with the idea that rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism of the rabbis, is a very peaceful kind of Judaism. Um, and that's not hard to argue, and in fact, most scholars who argue about whether you know, you, you know, whether the rabbis are peaceful or violent will definitely, you know, they almost always take the side that the rabbis were peaceful, uh, were peaceful um, Jews. Now, you know, because the idea here is that, you see, the way, the way it's often in, presented is that if you look at the Bible, you know, the Bible has a lot of violence in it. The, you know, the killing of the Canaanites and the killing of the Amalekites, you know, genocide against whole peoples, lots of wars throughout the biblical history, sometimes great cruelty, on, you know, from, from the greatest of our kings, like King David, if you really look at what he did in the Bible, it's not, it's not pretty. But you see, along come the rabbis, and what they did is that they eliminated violence from from judaism and it comes out in all of their writings now if you take a look at your your sheet there um there are two um there are two uh types of war that are discussed in the talmud and later become codified in, in medieval rabbinic literature two types of war and here you have the scheme. That's essentially codified by Maimonides in the Middle Ages, but all of this again falls under the rubric of the rabbis and rabbinic Judaism. You have two types of war. The first type of war is called milhemet mitzvah, which is mandatory war. It requires all you know able-bodied adults to fight. And what are those types of wars? Well, clearly, you know the. Uh, war against wars against the Canaanites. God commanded those. No one had any. You know, you didn't have a choice there, right? God wanted it. You had to do it. The Amalekites, the same thing, directly commanded by God. And then finally, defensive wars, which are never directly conan, com, you know, doesn't God doesn't have to command us to you know defend yourself. It's simply assumed in rabbinic tradition that you know self-defense is a matter of. Uh, divine principle. The principle of self-defense is sacrosanct. And therefore, the king wages war against an enemy trying to destroy the Jewish state and is very much allowed to do that. It's also considered to be a mandatory war. Then there's this other category, which is called milchemet rishut, which is optional or discretionary war. And these are wars for any other reason. And usually the, 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 the motivation here is aggressive. You know, it can be for economic benefit. It can be for the expansion of territory. You know, King David did that, and the rabbis looking back on this said this was okay. A Jewish king is allowed to do that kind of thing. But you see, if you read carefully, and actually you don't even have to read that carefully, what scholars like to say, modern scholars, is that really this is all just, most of this is in the imagination at this point. These wars can't be fought any, anymore, except maybe for a defensive war, right? If you have a modern Jewish state, which you have, there are no Canaanites around anymore, there are no Amalekites, they don't exist. What about discretionary wars? Well, here what you need, according to the rabbis, is the approval of a rabbinic Supreme Court, a Sanhedrin, and there is no that that thing did that institution disappeared in the fifth century. There is no Sanhedrin anymore. It will only be reestablished according to tradition in the Messianic period. And so if you take a look at this list of wars, really the only war that can be fought after the period of the Bible, according to the rabbis, is a defensive war. And so the rabbis really are kind of signaling to you that they don't like war that much. It can only be waged for defensive purposes. And you see, this is part of a much larger portrayal of the rabbis as individuals, a a group of leaders who were very much interested in a kind of peaceful sort of Judaism. Um, And they were idealistic about it. And the, and The inspiration emerges in the wake of the destruction of the second temple. Once the temple is destroyed, The rabbis look around this this destruction. By the end, it wasn't just the temple. The whole state is lying in ruins. Hundreds of thousands of Jews have been killed. And they look around and they say, look, you know, we're not going to take revenge. Here's how we're going to deal with our situation. This destruction occurred because of our sins. The best way for us to get back to where we want to, to get God to show favor upon us and to... Be build, rebuild our homeland, is to observe God's 613 commandments, live peaceful lives, repent for whatever sins we've done, and then God will reward us. But don't blame Rome, and don't go to war against them. You see, the, and, and of course, ultimately, the, the, the ultimate goal is the Messianic period. If, if we're obedient to God, then everything will be fine, God will send his Messiah, the state will be rebuilt, the temple will be rebuilt. So modern scholars tend to read the rabbis basically as semi-pacifists. Not hardcore pacifists, but semi-pacifists. The way you deal with the world is by observing the commandments. You don't try to seize the land again through violence. All right, what's wrong with this reading? Well, I I looked at the sources and said, there's another way to look at this. And there's 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 what I would call a violent reading of the rabbis, and it's a very uncommon reading. It's not one that you will hear very often. But I think, again, if you want to be honest about the sources, this is one way to read the rabbis. Is it really clear that the rabbis have renounced violence? No, I don't think so, because after all, they may have renounced violence not for idealistic motives but because of pragmatic necessity. They they couldn't win against Rome. They knew that. The devastation had proved that. And so violence wasn't really an option for them. And the laws of war which are on that sheet in front of you reflect this. Did the rabbis ever renounce the violence against the Canaanites and the Amalekites to say, you know, God really shouldn't have commanded those things? No. They never say that. They simply say those nations no longer exist because we wiped them out. The laws just aren't applicable anymore, right? Also, in the future, the most important thing is that in the future, the rabbis did envision the resumption of violence because the Messianic period was going to be one in which God would punish the enemies of the Jewish people in the process of bringing them back to their, their homeland, so how peaceful really were these rabbis? And here, let me give you another example. The, the Amalekites, the issue of the Amalekite nation is very instructive here. For many of the rabbis, the Amalekites were, were, were in fact a disfunct people. There were no more Amalekites around. But you've got to, you can't leave it at that. You can't just be satisfied with that, with that idea because in fact, the rabbis and Jews ever since <laughs> there were Amalekites, have used the image of Amalek to refer to their enemies. Amalek becomes the eternal enemy of the Jewish people in every period. So no, there weren't, maybe there weren't any Amalekites of the kind that existed in the, in the Bible, but the rabbis identify the Amalekites. They, they, they identify Amalekites in their own period in the, in, in the, Roman, in the Roman army, in the Roman Empire. Amalek is now Rome. And they refer to, to uh, Rome as Amalek. Go to the medieval period. The rabbis say Amalek is still around. They're the Christians who wanna who want to destroy us. In the 20th century, who was Amalek? It was Hitler and the Nazis. And there are very, very serious um, discussions among some of the rabbis about that identification. And of course, in Israel today, who is Amalek? Amalek is for a lot of right-wing Israelis is
0: the Palestinians. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.ValleyBaitMidrash.org.
1: Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So, the image of Amalek became very flexible, very malleable, and. Amalek isn't necessarily defunct. Its image has been attached to every enemy. And notice how serious this is. If you really take the Jewish tradition seriously, you know, and literally, which some Jews do, Amalek, the fact that Amalek, you identify as a people as Amalek, meaning you are pronouncing genocide upon them. It's really what you're doing. So it's a very, very serious issue. Now again, so which reading is right? Will the, real ra- will, the, will the true rabbis please stand up? And the answer really is both. There is ambiguity here. All right, let's now move on to the second topic that I wanna deal with, which is Zionism. Um, now Zionism is interesting and complicated because it absorbed all of the f- thinking that came before it. Zionism is the product of 3,000 years of Jewish history from the Bible all the way up to the 20th century. Even secular Zionism is, uh, in in many respects, um, the product of 2,000 years of Jewish tradition. However, I'd like to focus, because this could just, I could talk for a very long time about Zionism, I'd like to focus on religious Zionism, Religious Zionism, because it's very important politically this, these days, and also that you, it's very interesting to see the division here. The division between violent and peaceful is very interesting, um, and as I say, has some very important political ramifications. So let's start with the violent reading. You know, uh, this is this is the one. In fact, you know, among liberal circles, this is often the assumption, which is that you know the religious Zionism is violent. You know, the, this, the settler movement in Israel, uh, the people who um, have the greatest, you know, the strongest nationalism these days tend to be religious Zionists. Um, And you could argue, of course, that it's inherently violent because of this wedding of this bringing together of religion and nationalism. That's the way it's often perceived. Now, in fact, you know, there is some truth to this. Portrayal. It, the, you, and, and, and I need to give you a little bit of background here. Religious Zionism starts really with the beginnings of Zionism. But the most important figure in Zionism uh, that brings together or, or, or um, begins to think about a Jewish state um, and um, the violent um, the violent um, uh, uh, potentialities here is Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook Ruvkuk. He's the he's the chief rabbi of what was then Palestine before the creation of the State of Israel. He never lived to see the State of Israel created. He died in 1935. Wrote a large body of writings in which he argued passionately that the Jewish state was the beginning of the Messianic redemption. That was really his major contribution. It had an enormous impact um, on on, um, later generations. And this view, in fact, is, you know, when you think about it, I mean, where did this come from? Well, there are, in fact, rabbinic sources, sources among the rabbis in rabbinic writings, that talk about the Messianic period as being something that doesn't just come suddenly, but actually kind of evolves gradually through the course of natural events and natural political events. And Rabbi Cook took took this very seriously and said, aha, the Zionist movement is the beginning of the Messianic redemption. It's that natural process that the sources were talking about. It was really his son, however, that really made this a powerful movement. This is Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook. By the way, I've written down the names on your sheet, uh, the, the ones that are not easy to um, just spell out loud. I figured I would just give, him, give them to you on a sheet. Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook died in 1982 also believed that the state of Israel was the beginning of, fa- of the messianic redemption, but the difference here was that he, he lived when the state was created. And so when it was created, he pronounced, told everybody, uh, told the, the followers of his father, the messianic, the messianic vision is now taken the next step. We have, a, we have a state, and the state is holy. We have an army, and the army is holy, and of course the inevitable thing was that the wars that that army wages are also holy. Now of course he understood that the state was secular but secular Israelis according to him were simply doing God's work without knowing it and eventually he said they will come around to the truth it's just a matter of time before those secular Israelis recognize that in fact this is the beginning of the messianic redemption and they will become all become orthodox Jews Now the most important thing here, the most consequential part of this was that according to uh, the younger cook, Tzvi Yehuda, the Jews had to settle the lands that were promised to Abraham. Those were the lands that would be the lands of the Messianic kingdom. And therefore, when Israel conquered those territories in 1967, almost all of them, most of that, not all of it, but most of that, certainly the West Bank, fell under that category. This was, this, you know, again, this is God working through history to bring about the Messianic kingdom. The one thing you could not do was give that land back because that would be a reversal of God's intentions. And this explains the settlement movement. The settlement movement grew out of this passion for this messianic vision, and that the lands that were captured, particularly the West Bank, had to be held onto, and they had to be developed, and they had to be part of the messianic, the future messianic kingdom. Now, these views also went went along with some very negative views about non-Jews. And again, this is primarily the younger Cook Tzvi Yehuda, who said that it's no surprise that we have enemies, right? It's no surprise that the Arabs hate us because non-Jews generally are allied with the forces of evil. They're bent on destroying the Jewish people. They tried to do it in the Holocaust. Uh, They're attempting now to do it again in order to thwart God's plan. And so for Tzvi Yehuda, Arabs, Nazis, they're kind of all the same thing, right? Right? And it was all the non, you know, this was kind of a non-Jewish conspiracy to thwart God's messianic plan. They represented the forces of evil. There's, you know, if you, you know, told in this manner, and I haven't told you anything wrong, anything inaccurate, not. uh, Religious Zionism is violent. Inherently violent. What about the peaceful? Is there a peaceful reading of this? Well, there certainly is, because there's actually another side to the story and one that's much less well-known. For most of its history, religious Zionism was actually fairly moderate. The earliest religious Zionists rather, tended to be people who did not want to have a violent relationship with Arabs. And the names, again, are on your sheet there, Rabbi. People like um, Yitzhak Yaakov Reines and Rabbi Meir Bar-Ilan. He's the guy who the university is named after believed that the, that the Jewish state should be simply, should be a refuge for Jews, and nothing more. There was, this was not a messianic state. They did not want to accept this whole dimension of uh, Cook's legacy. And uh, when violence erupted between Jews and Arabs before the creation of the states, if you know, you know your history, right, in the 30s in particular, rebellion, there was a lot of violence between Jews and Arabs, um, Jews and Palestinians in, in the land at that time, these, these Israeli Orthodox rabbis were in the forefront of the opposition to using violence against Arabs. Okay, in, it was okay in self-defense, but you couldn't terrorize Arabs. And in fact, interestingly, you know, it's so different from today; it takes a little getting used to. The, the Jews in, who were who actually indulged in terrorizing Arabs and the British and anybody who opposed them were, in fact, secular Jews. Right, the Irgun the Stern gang. These were secular Jews. They were none. I, we it. I know religious Jews who were part of it. Yeah, yeah, but I mean Stern himself, Begin, I mean, we're talking primarily about the the philosophy that each of these groups had had nothing to do with Messianism. If there were Orthodox Jews that were part of it, it wasn't part of the fundamental um, orientation of these people. We're not talking about, you know, people like the followers of Rav Cook. And what's interesting is, in fact, that the elder Ruff Cook himself m- probably wouldn't have been happy with his son's views. He, actually, he, he, in fact, says quite explicitly in a number of places in his writings that uh, the creation of a Jewish state has to come through peaceful means. In fact, he saw the Jewish state as kind of a beacon of peace for the world. So it's interesting that even the founder of the movement, a lot of the followers these, nowadays in the, in the West Bank, they don't like to acknowledge this, but the father was actually quite... Um, uh, had a very peaceful orientation. But the point is here that is that um, many religious Zionists um, uh, throughout the history, in fact, before 1967, tended to uphold this more peaceful form of, Zion, of religious Zionism. And even today, you find uh, groups of religious Zionists, although they're fairly small, uh, that take this Position. And again, which, which side is, is right? Well, you know, you know, what's the more accurate reading? Well, in some sense, both are correct. There is a genuine ambiguity here. So, look, well, you know, the next question is now that I've kind of taken a look at a couple of different chapters here in Jewish history, you know, Rabbinic Judaism, Zionism, you see this kind of ambiguity. Why are, they, why are the texts so ambiguous? And as I said earlier, a lot depends on, on, on what you emphasize. But there are other factors as well, and I can't go through them in any detail here. Uh, some of it's kind of complicated, but one thing that, that did keep coming up and, and was very important was the whole issue of historical context. Um, for instance, um, in, um, in the peace camp, right on the side of peace, the, ar- the argument is often made that Jewish texts have been violent towards non-Jews because of persecution, right? And there's a a good bit of truth in that. If you actually follow the history and see where the texts have emerged that are most violent or most negative about non-Jews, surprise, surprise, it's in those places where Jews were often horribly mistreated. and given the fact that persecution goes back all the way, right, I mean, the Bible, you know, people often forget, it's not just about the Holocaust. You know, Jews have had problems really from, I, I, my joke always is that things kind of went downhill after the ninth century BCE, you know, when the, you know, with the Assyrian destruction of the Northern Kingdom, you know, Jews have never had it easy. So is it any surprise that Jews, um, that Jews have sometimes come up with violent views? But so, so the view is here, you see, on this peaceful side um, is that historical context plays a role. And generally, people that, who want to see a peaceful, who really believe in a peaceful reading of Judaism, uh, will often look back uh, on the past and say, well, the true Judaism isn't violent, but it gets distorted when Jews are being persecuted. And so we've got to cut our, you know, our, our Jews uh, you know, some, some slack here. Of course, if you're being tortured and killed by non-Jews, you're going to have a negative opinion of them. So that's you know that's interesting, and I found that I find that very interesting because <laughs> one thing that with the with, with this with the people making this argument often don't see see this as a double-edged sword, no pun intended. Right, it's a double-edged sword because think about it the other way: is it possible that some of the texts in Judaism that are seen as being peaceful can be explained away by the same logic? if you if you if you're willing to say that the texts the text in the Middle Ages were violent because Jews were being persecuted, why not say, well, those peaceful texts were peaceful because Jews weren't being persecuted, and that the true Judaism is violent? And in fact, there are thinkers who do this. This was a technique that you find in the writings of somebody like Mayer Kahana, you know, who is a, a, a very violent Jewish activist assassinated in, in, uh, in 1991, but a rabbi who really you know, be- believed that uh, the Arabs were the ultimate evil and they all had to be expelled from Israel, he often resorted to this kind of argument that the, you know, the, the texts, those lovely peaceful texts that you read, that was back then when Jews didn't have power. And so they kind of had this weak Judaism. But now that we have our own state again, we can go back to the Judaism of King David, right? The, the king who killed people who waged war and conquered and never made any apologies over what he did. A muscular Judaism. Now that's we're going back to the true Judaism. Sometimes I you know I, I joke with people and I say you know have you ever heard of anybody making this argument about a text like love your neighbor as you love yourself? You know is it, we're always historicizing the violent sources. But has anybody ever said, well, it says in the Bible, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But that was back in the period of the Bible when they kind of had to love each other because they had to get along. But nowadays, we don't have to adhere to that anymore because it's, well, no one ever makes that argument. You know, in other words, if if you're going to play this game fairly with historical context, you have to look at both sides. So the point here is that in addition to just the fact that you have different interpreters emphasizing one thing or another, this whole question of the interplay between historical context and people's personal views is is complicated, very interesting, and is also a factor that determines. In other words, one of the reasons why the tradition is so ambiguous is because this element of how you deal with historical context is itself ambiguous. And this was, you know, again, there are many other things that I could talk about here, but this gives you a bit of a taste that is more than just, well, I like the text this way or that way. It it depends on the kind of reasoning that you use with things like historical context that go beyond that simple uh, paradigm. Um, So what do we do with all of this, right? If the the texts are ambiguous, can they really guide us? And, you know, we need to do that because we have a Jewish state and we can't just say, well, everything is ambiguous. Now, I can't give you a final answer to all of this. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I realize I'm going to disappoint some of you. Um, but what I'm going to try to do is give you some guidelines about how, how I think we need to approach this problem. First, let me say in my defense that, it, that if, if, if I can't give you ultimate, the ultimate answer here. Uh, Maybe that's kind of the way it's meant to be. You know, ambiguity isn't such a bad thing necessarily. It means that we as Jews have to engage uh, the study of the text and debate and decide for ourselves what it is that we want to get out of this religion. And that debate is critical, is actually a critical part and always has been of the Jewish tradition. You know, all of rabbinic Judaism was, was built on this idea of debate as being a holy thing. The Torah is not in heaven. It was given to human beings to interpret and God is empowering us. This is, you know, for those of you who heard my talk earlier today, I made this point that maybe this is kind of the way God wants it, that when it comes to the most basic fundamental questions about meaning of life and also about things like peace and violence, you know, he kind of wants us to do it on our own and that he's showing respect for us, and I hope, you know, hope we're up to the challenge. But I think that there's another ingredient here that needs to be added that can give us some direction. I think we... You know, one thing that we have to do, that can, one thing that can give us guidance here, is that we need to bring pragmatic considerations into play. We have to look at what, what, what works in the long term. Words, we have to ask ourselves what will guarantee the, both the survival and the vitality of the Jewish people and the state of Israel over the long term. Um, and there's already a debate about this. I mean, you know, the right-wingers are saying, well, you know, you've got you've to be militaristic because that's the only thing that'll work. And the left-wing says, no, you've got to have a peace deal because that's the only thing that'll work. Already pragmatism uh, has come into play. But here's my insight, my own original insight, which is that pragmatism isn't just <laughs> something that we add to the religious discussion. It's part of the religious discussion. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. Judaism, and in particular rabbinic Judaism, was actually always pragmatic, and and it was pragmatic as a matter of religious principle. The rabbis were willing to come up with highly creative interpretations of Jewish law in order to accommodate new circumstances. And in fact, all of rabbinic Judaism, in a way, is a testimony to that. The rabbis come along in a period in which the entire Jewish religion really should have disappeared. Your, your one temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. You, you know, you, maybe the covenant is over. There's devastation everywhere. You know, the, the, the land has been has been uh, it, you know was depopulated in 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 an extreme way. You know, there were, there were actually not that many Jews left. It really should have just ended there, which is really what Rome intended. But what the rabbis did is something remarkable, and that is they said, "Look, it's not going to end here. What we're going to do is that we're going to substitute." the temple with these things called synagogues in our own communities those are going to be our temples and we can't perform the sacrifices anymore which were in fact the center of Jewish religion for a thousand years what we're going to do is pray prayer is going to replace sacrifice and these are incredibly bold moves and the rabbis showed a, you know a tremendous amount of courage here in Saying we're not giving up, right? And we're going to do it. We're going to attack this problem in a very pragmatic way. And and listen, it's the same is true today, and that is the best rabbi is somebody who knows how to balance these various issues. Um, And I think it's look. You know, I'll take it even one step further. I think that not only. Did this help Judaism survive in the first century? But it's been one of the keys for Jewish sur- of Jewish survival for hundreds of years. And here I want to get a plug in for my new book, which I'm writing, which is on Jewish, the success of Jews in the modern period. Why have we won all those Nobel prizes, you know, that, that sort of thing? You know have Jews, Why have Jews done so well? I think it's part because we, the, the rabbis inculcated in Jews for hundreds of years this very pragmatic way of looking at the world it became kind of part of our psyche and part of our dna our psychological dna pragmatism you know pragmatism not just because you want to survive but because in fact it's god's will that you deal with your circumstances in creative ways you know and in that way you know we're being true to the jewish tradition on this so where does this leave us with the state of israel you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm you know, as lost as a lot of people uh, are on this. I mean, I've tried to make my politics as centrist as possible. Um, I believe on the one hand that Israel is certainly the homeland of the Jews. Israel needs an army to defend itself. Uh, but I also don't think that it's necessarily a good thing to be ruling over millions of Palestinians. So in the past, I've supported a two-state solution. The problem is that, well, everybody knows there's not much chance of that happening anytime soon because, well, I'm not sure either side is really ready for it and really wants to give up what's needed. But the important point I want to emphasize here is that I base my judgments on what I see as pragmatic and even more important, I see that pragmatism as having Jewish value. Now, let me say one more thing here. I'm not sure what the solution is, but I I am pretty sure about what we should not be doing. And again, it's based on the, the pragmatic consideration, which is that I strongly oppose any messianic agenda. Um, and I think this is something that's dangerous and that we really have to stand up against. You know? and, it's, and it's something You know, the settler community, um, they speak about these issues, and it's very worrisome. It's had a very powerful influence indirectly on Israeli politics. Messianic movements have tended to be very destructive in Jewish history. That could be a separate talk all in itself. And today, uh, messianic religious Zionism has the potential to be destructive as well. And why is that? Because messianism, active messianism, messianism is by definition not pragmatic. By definition, why? Because it encourages people to sacrifice everything in this world for the hope of a better world in in the future. (coughs) You know, so the attitude is go ahead, right? You know, kill, be violent, get rid of the enemies of God because it's all going to be worth it. Don't worry about world opinion because it's all going to be worth it. In the end, God will be on our side and he will bring the Messiah. That's kind of the antithesis of pragmatism. And the early rabbis, I'm convinced, didn't think that way. For them, the focus really was on this world and it was on keeping the commandments. The idea was to worry about the here and now. And for the messianic period, the, the rabbis, I think, were kind of very worried about this they they talk about the Messiah but they do that they, they do it in very muted terms and for very good reason because they function with the belief that the only way Jews were going to make it was not by living in some sort of you know well they, this is what the future world is going to be some sort of imagined future but to, to live in the world in the in the here and now so I think this is something that we you know we have to be very wary of um, that uh, is influencing Israeli politics now, look, undoubtedly, some of you are going to disagree with me with one or another point. I'd be shocked if that were not the case. Or maybe you disagree with the whole approach I'm taking. Or you may be very frustrated that I didn't say more and give you the answers to all of these questions. But look, I've done my best. I've presented, What I've presented here is the best I can do in dealing with some of the most complex issues that face the Jewish people today. And all I can do in conclusion is thank you for listening. Yes, sir.
0: The afternoon's presentation, you mentioned that during the establishment of rabbinic Judaism, we had no nation, we had no army. Yeah,
1: absolutely right. So, would not it have been very easy, therefore, for the rabbis to become passive? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's and that's. I right. have no choice. That's that's <laughs> the argument. Well, that's but that's the point. I mean, the question is, did they become passive out of idealistic motives because they really didn't believe violence was a good thing? Or do they do it out of pragmatic necessity? If they do it as idealistically, then, you know, the liberal can identify with them. But if they did it only out of pragmatic necessity, you see the right wing, you know, the militaristic uh, person can look back on them and say, well, of course they didn't, you know, they they didn't want to commit suicide by trying to attack Rome again. You know, they tried actually twice. You know, the Second Revolt also failed, the Berkhofer Revolt. um, you know, of course they were. Of course, You know, if they had an army, they would have gone and tr- tried to thump Rome. So, yes, it can go both ways. Yeah. Oh, yes, go ahead.
0: Uh, liturgically, I'm thinking, the so three times a day we pray for peace. Uh, the only time I think we ever pray for violence is at the Seder, at the Poor Thy Wrath Prayer, <laughs> yes. which a lot of uh, really yeah. conservative Jews do not say. Yeah. Uh, is there any other prayer that advocates violence or retribution against?
1: Them? No, but there's definitely there's definitely uh, in in the weekday I Amidah mean, the prayer of La Shinim, you know, to the enemies, you know, it, it, it uh, and I can't translate on this part of La Malshinim, but you know, for those who are who are um, um, who slander, um, you know, all the the wicked, you know, may they be destroyed very soon. Um, it doesn't quite pray for war in the sense like oh you know God give us an army you know but but it's 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 you can't really expect the rabbis to have expected that and you know they didn't they didn't they didn't they wouldn't have been able to imagine something like Zionism. Um, also, if you look in the, I'm just this is just off the top of my head. If you look in the it's a good question. If you look at the top of uh, I, I, if you look in the liturgy in in the Sabbath and and festival morning service, there is a psalm that's read that talks about God being, uh, you know, El Hashem El hofia, that God is the God of vengeance. So, you know, there are definitely statements, but it's usually, the violence is usually not of the form or the prayer for, for violence is not, let's assemble an army, it's that God, please take care of the bad people. You know. Yes? Just
0: the 19th and it was added after the Jews
1: been Yes, act. yes. And, and but my question
0: before and still is, why does there have to be an economy, which it is? It's both of there, why do you have to say that the that, pacifistic, the war there. You know, I don't see why you have to make a divide. This is the way it is. I don't, I don't see, you know, it's going to be, pe- people have both, different people have different opinions, and why does it have to be one or the other?
1: Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other, but but you see, I mean, I'm I'm grat- Look, I'm I'm very glad to hear that you, sir, are, are you know are comfortable with this. But there are a lot of people who, you know, as I said at the beginning, generally people don't want to know the other side. They don't want to accept that there's another side. And when I get up and I give these talks, in which I talk about both sides of Judaism, uh, I get you know a lot of different reactions. A lot of people saying, I didn't know that there I didn't know <laughs> you could look at rabbinic Judaism that way. Um, I, I, so I think it's very important as I said, to get these things out in the open because very, I find very few people are able to look at their own religious tradition and to say, look, there's real ambiguity here. There's a, there's a part that I relate to, but then there's this other side that I don't relate to. And I can't just pretend that it doesn't exist or try to explain it away. You, uh, yeah, you had your hand up. Sorry. You, you pin a lot of um, violence on messianism. Um, I don't think that's an original Jewish Oh, not at all. At what point in time, in the yeah. context of pragmatism, does the concept of a Messiah come into Jewish thinking? Uh, your question's a little ambiguous. <laughs> I'm not sure, because you, could, you, could you just explain a little bit more about what you're getting at? People that are persecuted need a Messiah. Right. People that are living indigenous in their own country don't really need so the concept of all this messianism yeah. does it start coming into play? Ah, ah. Okay. So well, that's a long story. You know, it actually it goes back to the period of the Bible. It goes back to the destruction of the first temple. You see, because you begin to have prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah speaking about a, the, the coming period in which everything will be restored. Now, it's a kind of messianism, but it isn't quite the kind of otherworldly messianism just yet. It's, it's more of a kind of, like, we, we're really pr- we believe, we imagine a restoration occurring in which the world will be um, not that much different from, it is now, from the way it is now, but it's sort of idealistic. And then the concept, over the next several centuries, becomes intensified. You begin to get texts, most of which, by the way, do not appear, in the Bible, it's, it, these are, were, were sacred texts, um, apocryphal texts, non-canonical texts that were written in which they begin to speak them in the Meso- about the Messianic period in very sort of grandiose and... and. Um, is it from Christianity? No, these are Jews. These are Jews. And what Christians do is very interesting you know, devel- developments here. You know, the first century... What happens is that by the time you get to the first century, Jews are, are speaking about these issues a lot because of the Roman Empire and the oppression. Even before the destruction of the temple, there's sort of this messianic fever that you have in certain circles of Judaism. And, the, and, and in those circles are people who begin to follow a fellow named Jesus, who is claimed to be that messianic figure. So you know, of course Christianity comes out of this, because Christianity began as a group of people who fully identified as Jews who said that the Messianic, you know, the, the Messianic figure is here, and he's going to help us out. All the complication was that he got crucified. And what do you do then? Well, you then hope for him to come back. Okay, so I mean, all of it, yes. Yeah, so it begins really with the destruction of the first temple. It's then recorded in the Bible, is then developed further in these non-biblical um, texts that are read by a lot of Jews, and eventually when the rabbis come along, and the Christians in the first century, it's all there. It's all being picked up by the, both groups. And the Messianic idea develops among both groups. And by the way, so I, I, I'm i a reformed uh, religious Zionist and post-67, when mm-hmm. they zigged. In other words, that's where I got off. Uh, you zagged, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah go ahead. Uh, I'm wondering, I'm a little bit confused on whether
0: the peaceful versus um, aggressive or warlike Judaism is is the most helpful dichotomy,
1: because um, one can be warlike in a defensive way. Um, And I'm wondering if the dichotomy between kind of the mandatory and discretionary Judaism might work better in terms of um, discriminating the
0: different way,
1: different views of Jewish people towards violence and war. Well, it's interesting what you're saying, but you see, I think the, the dichotomy works is, you know, at least with the example you're, you're, you're bringing up here, which is this issue of war. Um, you, you have to be violent in order to be defensive. You have to, you have to kill people, you have to have an army, you have to do bad things in order to defend yourself. And that, but that's considered to be defensive. When I talk about aggressive war, I'm talking about war, as I say on the sheet, for economic benefit. Um, economy isn't going very well. Uh, we could use a little more land. Uh, we really uh, could use some more cattle. And, you know, those guys over there, let's go, let's go attack them in order to better our economic circumstances. That's aggressive. So
0: your, your dichotomy really is between mandatory versus discretionary
1: war. Yeah. Not only do I see those ambiguities, but I teach a whole course on this. <laughs> I use I use this <laughs> I use this uh, I use this, this whole model as a way of then opening up the same issues in Christianity and Islam. And eventually, what I did was I put together a course a number of years ago, which is I think maybe my favorite course, and it's very popular at GW. Uh, and it's called Peace and Violence in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And what I do is that I use this, this dual reading this, uh, for all three religions. Um, and what's interesting is that in some ways, look, the religions are different, all three of those religions. But because they're from the same sort of Abrahamics, because they come from us, <laughs> you'd be amazed at how similar some of the strategies are, you know, so that, you know, on either side. So, you know, you you do the peaceful and violent reading in Islam or in Christianity, and you find yourself very interestingly in the same, using the same modes of arguments for all three. And yet, of course, the three religions are not the same. And there are some areas, you know, there's some things that Muslims and Christians do that Jews don't do, and uh, they're all a little bit different. And that's what the course is about. Maybe that'll be... Maybe that'll be the next book project. Time, is it less ambiguous? No, it's, in fact, it's just as ambiguous. And you know why, in, in a way, it kind of has to be. And this is one of the things that I bring home to my students, which is that when you have a religious tradition that evolves over a period of a couple of thousand years, you can't have clarity on some of these issues because you're talking about millions and millions of people who produced thousands of interpreters how can it possibly, you know, this is what, why it drives me crazy when somebody says, well, you know, Islam is a violent religion or Judaism is a peaceful religion. I'll say, gee, you know, it's, it, is it really that simple when you have a tradition that's been, you know, around for 2,000 years and you've got thousands of people writing books that everybody's going to just have the same view on something that important? It just doesn't work that way. Yeah?
0: I, I, I would say that the Jews had their Messiah by going back to Israel after the Babylonian exile, and so we expect it to happen again. If that had we not been uh, redeemed, as it were, to go back to Israel, we wouldn't be here now. The Jews would have assimilated
1: totally, and, and yeah. Yeah, I often point that out in my in my classes when I you know go through the history to say, well, here are all the times when really it all should have ended. It really should have ended in Babylon, but some, but it didn't. I mean, you know, we we, we have back. we have yeah we went back, and in fact we you know what you're saying is very interesting because. I think it might even come out in a couple of places in my book, that when the rabbis began to think about messianism, they, they actually modeled it on... They, they, they don't do it explicitly, but you can see that what their thinking is, what they're, that, 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 what, that their thought process is modeled or is predicated on this idea that history will repeat itself. So, you know, and, and I'll give you a very interesting, you know, just to kind of... What I think, I guess, is the key example of this, which is that... 70 years after the destruction of the first temple about 65 70 years later the Bar Kokhba revolt breaks out and that is a, that and, and where the Jews again try to throw off the, first, the, the second temple sorry i'm sorry i'm just very tired still on east coast time um, so yes the second when the second temple is destroyed it's about seventy years later that the Jews go to war again with the Bar Kokhba revolt, which is a, really a suicidal event, adventure based on a messianic figure. The idea was that Bar Kokhba was was. You bad you. What? You
0: say messianism is bad for
1: Jews. Yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly was. Look, it, was, it certainly was in this instance, right? Because the Bar Kokhba revolt is crushed, and, and, and Jews are as like when the you know the Romans are not, not just mad, they're really really mad, you know, because this keeps happening. And there's, you know, some, there, there, there are scholars who have guessed, even though there's no explicit proof of this, that the reason why the Bar Kokhba revolt occurred about 70 years afterwards was because that was the period of time that had elapsed between the destruction of the first temple and the rebuilding of the second temple. So the Jews were saying, it's time, right? And the history is going to repeat itself, but we don't see anything happening here. So let's go out and get it. Let's, let's defeat the Romans. So, that, so because God obviously wants us to, repeat history here and rebuild the temple it was a critical error right it didn't didn't work that way history did not repeat itself
0: well, but, but Akiva
1: and others thought he was the right 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 well you know and there were rabbis who were very unhappy about with Akiva for that you know there was there was clearly a split in the rabbis on whether to whether to, uh, to support <laughs> right rabbis arguing with each other wow we've never heard of that before yes other questions Thank you. (laughs) It's
0: ambiguous.
1: It's ambiguous. All right, thank you for coming.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture.